Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the mailbag! That is right. I am Austin Hayden. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Ryan Haley. Sup, film fans and letter writers? And we've got Raymond Creamer. Hey, everybody. And this week, as Ryan alluded to, we are going to be answering your questions. We're going to be doing a deep dive into the mailbag. So emails, voicemails, any fancy things that have come to us from Twitter. Um, We're going to be addressing those things this episode. I don't know how many we're going to get through. Raymond, what do you think? You're the master of ceremonies for this this episode. How many are we going to try to get through? Uh, I've got like 15 on deck. I think that's, we. a few of them are fast, a few of them are a little bit longer. We'll see what happens. Fast and slow, as they say. Yeah, so, we're taking it fast and absolutely. slow. Absolutely. That's right. So we'll get into that. I do want to do just a little bit of housekeeping before we get started. You know, make sure you give us a follow over on Twitter, smtm underscore pod, where we're sharing articles and other related thoughts related to the films that we address week by week. Uh, We've also got a Patreon, patreon.com slash wisecrack, where we've been releasing bonus content, where we talked about like the philosophy of acting. We talked about um, great debut feature films, what makes a great debut feature. We talked a little bit deeper about Apocalypse now, etc., etc. So go to patreon.com slash wisecrack for that. Make sure to check out the other Wisecrack podcasts, particularly Culture Binge, which is constant. And then, of course, you can check the Vault of the Squanch, which Ryan is uh, deeply a part of. And what else? Uh, I guess there's the South Park podcast. We got it. All, all, yeah, the South Park, all the all the podcasts that are on that network. So go ahead and check out all of that goodness. And of course, keep sending us your thoughts and your feedback. You can email us movies at wisecrack.co. You can call us at one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. I finally have that number memorized. So yeah, that's all of the housekeeping out of the way. So we're gonna get into this mailbag. We're gonna get through as many as we can. But of course, before we do that, we gotta pay some bills. So run it. All right, but before we continue, we got to give a shout out to our sponsor of this week's episode, Storyblocks. Look, y'all know the deal. Storyblocks is the complete stock solution, providing an unlimited library of over a million royalty-free, high-quality video, audio, and images through cost-effective subscription plans. One of the things that's so badass is that you have unlimited downloads, which means you can kind of create on the fly. You can go in there and you can try out multiple options quickly so that you can create more and spend less time faffing about. You can create more videos and bring your story to life without sacrificing your vision due to time, budget, or resources. Honestly, every creator should really have a Storyblocks membership. I use Storyblocks. Wisecrack, we use Storyblocks. They're really fantastic because you can just get in there, you can find your After Effects goodies, you can find your sound effects, you can find music, and then you don't have to worry about having to pay for any of this stuff because it's all right there and free. And then you plug and you pop it in, and if it doesn't work, then you go back to the library and you find one that suits. Look, you know the deal. Get over to storyblocks.com slash wisecrack and you can learn all about their premium membership. That's storyblocks.com slash wisecrack or of course you can click the link down below. All right, now back to the show. All right, sick. So I'm going to turn it over to Raymond who has his lists upon lists of uh, emails and voicemails for us to go through. So Raymond, take it away, brother. Yeah, I've got the list. I'm checking it twice. Uh, just a heads up, folks. Uh, <laughs> if you hear your uh, your question on here, we, we did kind of massage these and edit them in some places just for the, uh, the sake of the runtime. But uh, we mean no disrespect and we appreciate all the feedback. So the first question we got here is uh, a pretty quick one from Shane Parvin uh, about Moonlight. Hey everyone, longtime fan and listener. Thank you, Shane. I was wondering if any of you noticed similar themes or vibes in Moonlight and Nicholas Winding Refn films. I don't know why, but Moonlight and Drive seem similar to me. The neon lighting, the nighttime exteriors, romances that are rendered impossible through circumstance, and masculinity being performed as a facade. Um... So uh, thank you, Shane. I'll say uh, right off the bat, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn has kind of like lifted his leg on neon lighting in movies. So it's one of those things that's, <laughs> you know, if, if you if you use certain kind of like high contrast color schemes in your movies, you're going to maybe court some comparison to him. He has a good reason. He is uh, he's colorblind. I'm sure we've talked about this yeah. on the show. So that's that's one of the reasons that he goes for really high contrast lighting schemes so that he can... Um, uh, better differentiate the elements within the frame. But what do you guys think? Uh, some comparisons between Drive and Moonlight? I mean, to me, it begins and ends with uh, neon lights. Like <laughs> yeah. I think I can see that comparison. Um, 
but yeah, the rest, I, I mean, cool take. I have to chew on it for a little bit. I mean, I think when we're talking about certain themes like performative masculinity or something like that, that's that's such a broad concept that I think it seeps into the culture writ large in a variety of ways. So I think you're going to see it in a lot of things. I, I, I would say that if I were categorizing films, I don't think I would categorize Moonlight and like Neon Demon in the same together. Um, but... Absolutely, I, I kind of agree with Ryan. I think, in an intentional set, in an intentional sense, there might be a, a sense in which Barry Jenkins is like, "Oh, sick! I love the neon colors. I love the bright contrast." Maybe he's had some sort of like drawn some sort of inspiration from that. But I, I, I don't think the um, the relation goes much deeper than kind of just the the general sense but i think it's because again i think there's a certain zeitgeist right when um that that we can kind of tap into and i think the issue of masculinity and how to explore that is something that is gonna pop up and be expressed in a variety of different formats and yeah i think that's kind of where the comparisons end ultimately um all right this one uh this one's probably this is a little longer probably the longest one we have but i just wanted to uh give it some recognition because it was very thoughtful um uh, jessica holmes wrote in concerning black widow uh hey wisecrack jessica from alabama here uh love you guys so much i in no one way want to be rude but i was surprised at some of the things you may have missed in black widow i saw this with my grandmother and we loved it i don't think it's a masterpiece but there were some things that you guys said you didn't quite understand so here's my 24 year old female perspective on those melina natasha didn't tell the others because they didn't have time. They decided to switch sides because of the conversation between her and Natasha and the photo album. Uh, Natasha's confession that your words kept me alive uh, helped persuade her to um, uh, side with her and it it made them see the other widows as people as well. Um, On the comment about girls being disposable, being laughable and not making sense, anyone who has studied history at all should know that this is true. Um, Jessica, I agree with you on uh, on that point. Um, I think the the comment in the movie is that uh, the bad guy says that he references something to the effect of uh, the most precious natural resource, and then he says young women. And I think if, if we were laughing about that line, it was just kind of like the way that it was phrased. Like, obviously, we, we, uh, we understand that, um, you know, sex trafficking and, uh, and sexual violence are no laughing matter. Uh, so apologies if that seemed reductive on our part. Um, but it was just a, a very weird way to phrase that. And it kind of implied that, uh, to me at least, it implied that wars are being fought more over... Uh, young women than they are being fought over like land or oil or what have you and that that was just a strange a strange thing to float in there but back to Jessica's email as for the villain having no personality uh, she says she liked that it sets you up to think that his daughter maybe could have been his saving grace and Black Widow took that from him but no he had her and he manipulated her some men are garbage to their daughters in worse ways than he was that's a reality that every woman is raised with I honestly don't care about his reasons what he has done to these women is unforgivable humanizing him or making excuses or justifications would have been disgusting and I think we're allowed a yeah fuck him he doesn't get our attention or our screen time instead they spend time building a relationship between two women that has nothing to do with a man but this is Marvel so shit needs to blow up because honestly if it didn't how many men would have come to see it it wasn't my favorite thing either but I have to admit that I got some sick satisfaction from watching a predator literally burn that was a very intentional shot too they cut back inside to watch him burn as she states there And um, she also mentions here at the end, this email may sound angry because I am not at you guys, but at the fact that we have to have this discussion or model the villain after real people at all. Also, the movie is really angry too and intentionally so. And she postscripts it with also OMG pockets. That's the most relatable dialogue ever. Um, So what do you guys think? uh, Revisiting Black Widow there. She uh, she raises some good points. uh, And as I mentioned in the uh, the middle of the question there we in no way meant to uh diminish the very real world acts of violence on which that sort of stuff is based um but there were some kind of weird stilted dialogue moments but uh what do you think about the other stuff there austin well i think uh, the, the first thing i'm thinking about if i can just kind of toss out something that's a, an academic subdiscipline. it's called social reproduction theory and um it kind of comes out of i guess you call it like radical political theory for lack of a better way to phrase it and one of the ideas is that um labor has to be reproduced somehow and historically um in the domestic sphere it's been the role of women that have done this but the problem is is that 
that labor that has allowed for men to have lunches and have meals at home or have the home taken care of or have all of the elements of domesticity taken care of, that hasn't been uh, factored in economically and it hasn't really been rewarded or um, given credit um, in any proper sense. But there actually is a lot of research out there that has tried to quantify how much value is in the domestic sphere or through care work or things like that. And so one of the things that I think that we can think of with Black Widow is that what they've done is they've kind of taken what is um, a sort of like abstract idea about like the value of womanhood and woman female contribution in society. And they've kind of turned it into something a bit more concrete and they've made it into like a good guy, bad guy story. But I think that there is something really interesting if people want to study this further to kind of think about like, okay, what is there? in the sense that actually the kind of um, role of of standing in the societal subject position of womanhood, of what it done, what it's done in a socioeconomic sense to actually create value. And then what would it mean if you controlled that value and exploited it for gain, which is kind of what the baddie does in this, right? He's controlling the value of womanness, for lack of a better way of putting it. And, um, and he's creating great value on it, right? There's something along those lines there. I mean, it might be a bit of a stretch, but it, that's kind of where my mind goes when I was first watching the film. And if people are interested, check out social reproduction theory or, um, even like Marxist feminism there's a lot of stuff in that in that uh, literature that kind of addresses these themes in in diverging ways but that's all i got to say about that uh ryan i think uh i've got another black widow follow-up here uh that i'm curious your thoughts on uh from jared waltz we've got a question uh i want he says i wanted to share some of my thoughts on black widow and more specifically whether the big cgi spectacle ending detracts from the more grounded character moments that the film has could it be that we are conditioned to mentally check out of a film when the action goes too big due to blockbuster films focusing too much on spectacle in general? Personally, I think there is a balance to be struck between sincerity and spectacle, and that Black Widow does so effectively. Um, for my two cents, this this question kind of reminded me of that. What's the old adage that like one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic, and in some ways, like escalation on screen. Uh, has a way of like just inuring us to the stakes of it, but uh, I, I don't know, Ryan. What what did you uh, think about the finale of that film? I can't recall from our, our previous discussion. <laughs> well, it's funny that he he put it like that because during the whole discussion that you guys were just having, uh, you know, about her well put email, I'm sitting here like racking my brain. It's hilarious to me, like months after watching these movies. How it just immediately is kind of in one ear and out the other. <laughs> you're talking about the baddie. I'm like, who was the baddie in that movie? I watched the whole fucking movie, you know, and uh, and it's just funny to me. Yeah, how um, yeah, I saw a lot of things blow up. And then I, left. <laughs> I never thought about it again until right now, and I'm trying to remember it. Well, just so I have no real, you know, comment. Just to me, the commentary is on how disposable. Sure. <laughs> Somewhat. I think we've we've kind of circled this. Uh, circled this topic so many times on Marvel movie discussions uh, in the past, but do you guys think, I mean, even from like a philosophical perspective, uh, Austin, do you, do you think that we as a society have been like inured to violence on a grand scale, not necessarily through movies, but just through, as you mentioned, like social conditioning and stuff like that? Is it? Yeah, it's a fucking okay. problem. Like, <laughs> the, it, okay. like it's a fucking problem. <laughs> it's a fucking problem, right? Like the fact that we can watch bodies be torn apart and um, that it doesn't like make us weep is a really interesting thing, right? Like, um, or that it just happens and it doesn't make us feel anything sometimes, right? Now, sometimes you do. You see a body torn apart and you're like, ooh, er, gross. But then my question is, is do we do we have the rational skills to kind of like take that feeling, that sort of like visceral feeling and think through it in ethical terms? Like, what does that mean about should we respect the body? Um, should we respect life? Like, these are all these philosophical questions that I think don't often get addressed because then you just have the next scene where a body's blown up or you have the next film where a body's blown up or the next video game where a body's blown up and I'm not trying to say like the whole reductive video games make people violent that's not it but I also think it's extremely naive to think that the media that we saturate ourselves with doesn't have some sort of impact on shaping our thoughts actions and feelings and so for me it's important to figure out how can we navigate through that not to reductively be like it's either this or that I'm more concerned with how we think about things I would uh, push back on that a little bit or disagree with it, basically, um, in the sense that I think it it, it, it all uh, matters, obviously, in how it's filmed and how and the quality of it. Like, like if you look like Saving Private Ryan, which to me is a you know giant scope movie, huge budget budget, 
and people are dying left and right, but it's like you you feel it more because the stakes are set up in a way that's really human. You know, you, you know, these as well. Yeah. There's gravity, you know, that there's, and it holds up today. If you watch that movie, if, if a to the modern audience watches that movie at the beginning, the Normandy scene, they're not going to go just be unfeeling. I think they're going to go, wow. Oh man. You know, like every death counts and matters. I think it's the way that these things are filmed. You got stuff, you know, stuff like John Wick or whatever, where literally it is a cartoon of just how can we murder people just a in different in cooler ways. ways. Yeah. And so obviously the audience, obviously the audience is not going to like feel like every day I think, oh my God, that was a, a man. He had a family. They're just kind of like, oh yeah, that was cool. Let's go see the next one. And I feel like this, the Marvel stuff kind of has that weight to it where it's like the people are dying uh, and the Man of Steel was a big one that got a lot of flack for it. It was like all these yeah. people are dying supposedly and no one cares. And it's just yeah. for this art entertainment. So uh, and uh, what does that say? Yeah. And I, I think it's just how it's filmed, you know, and then but I think that they went back later in the in with the movies and, and you know, investigated the people, the human toll and whatever of that. Yeah. Let me let me add one one other wrinkle of complexity here. Um, so we can think about things in terms of the personal. We can think about things in terms of the relational. We could think of the cultural, the societal, the global, the political, the economic, whatever. Right. So when we watch a film like Saving Private Ryan, it's also filmed from a particular perspective where we are meant to empathize with the cause of the troops that are landing on the beach. We're not supposed to give a fuck about the other people, the other side. So we dehumanize them all in I uh, typically we we we're, we're yeah not a lot of people rooting for rooting for the Germans during the first right. scene of saving private right right right, right. <laughs> you see him as people though you know like there's this scene where he's like get, you know uh, they, they let him survive and then I, don't so, know. I mean the point isn't to be like oh we should have more empathy for the Nazis that's not the point but the point is is to always be aware that whenever something's being filmed it's being filmed from a particular perspective which is one of the reasons I loved Eternals so much was because Eternals was a human story a multicultural human story rather than the typical superhero film which is very much patriotic America is the best right and so the violence then still buttresses that sort of more global political maybe even global economic stuff and that's the stuff that we don't always have the resources to think about and so it kind of unconsciously shapes how we view the goodness or badness or the compassionate response to violence as it plays out what what I was going to say to that end Spielberg I I, I said quite famously I don't know how famously this aspect of his movies are but in saving private ryan and schindler's list he he quite pointedly um avoids he doesn't subtitle the germans like he he intentionally renders them inhuman in in that way by like the other keeping them unknowable yeah. and keeping them the other yeah ryan what were you gonna say i was just gonna bring up jimmy snowman in the uh, chat here since this is the mailbag episode <laughs> who's who and i yeah. agree with their what they say I, they go i also somewhat disagree we know that movies and games are fake detaching us from ethical or emotional responses when watching actual footage of dead torn apart bodies most of us will respond I mean, do you disagree yeah. with that? Um, to an extent, I, I would disagree. I think it's a little naive to think that if we watch bodies, um, whether or not we know that it's fake or real or play out on a screen, the whole point of immersive cinema is to manipulate our emotions in particular ways. I think that there is no such thing as a real distinction between, quote, real and, quote, fake. I think it's really more about in what ways is this real? In what ways is this alluding to us? It's the famous Baudrillard, and Baudrillard talks about how, like, the Gulf War didn't happen. What does he mean by that? Not that there weren't actually invasions, blah, blah, blah. What he meant by that was that the images that were fed are always already coded in media time by a narrative. So even when we watch footage of, for example, and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but let's just talk about it, the Kyle Rittenhouse footage, there's so many different ways to skew who was the aggressor, how did this happen, what angle is this, what events preceded this, what was your context, who were you, do you have a police record, da 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 da, da, da. And the point is, is that nothing, nothing that comes to us is ever purely objective. It's always filtered, sure. so mediatized, and narrativized. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good example, though. I mean, because when that, I mean, that's real footage and stuff. So obviously you have, you know, uh, uh, these reactions you're talking about. But when you go to a theater or play or something where there's this contract between the audience and the performance where you're like, all right, I know that I'm coming to watch a fake theatrical presentation yeah, they or something. Don't, they high, don't show snuff reality. films at AMC. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're down for whatever. And, uh, uh, because it's part of the thing that you bought into, you know, and I think that that's the big stark difference in terms of, of it's not. I don't think that makes you unfeeling if you uh, get off on watching some really violent. Exactly. But again, 
but again, that would be reductive, right? To say it makes you unfeeling. Again, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to navigate away from generalizations and say it's not that you either are unfeeling or you are empathetic or whatever. I, I want to say it's let's let's think more critically and with a lot of nuance when it comes to this because I just don't think that we can be so. Um, I, I don't think we can be so reductive to say that it's also benign that violence is played out on screen. Sure. Um, I, I want to keep things moving since we have 300 questions to get to. <laughs> um, we got one on this note just to put a button on this and kind of bring it back to uh, cinema. Uh, Walter Boley wrote in uh, with a, a comment about Suicide Squad. He said, um, I want to take a moment to shout out the fight between Rick Flag and Peacemaker near the end of the Suicide Squad. One thing I loved about their fight was that it was clearly a fight to the death and as a viewer I had no idea who was going to win there was real tension in a superhero movie for once because there was no guarantee that the good guy was going to make it good guy in quotes the film had clearly established that no character in the film is guaranteed to survive with maybe the exception of Harley Quinn since she's the franchise figure uh, and they show that fact as much as telling it um, so I, yeah I just thought this was a good one to cap this conversation on because it, it brings it back to the, the question that I'm always engaged with with a movie whether it's Black Widow or Eternals or you mentioned Man of Steel that to me there are a lot of times where these movies become about uh, we need to do X or the world will end and that just has kind of a deflating effect for me stakes wise I like more more personal grounded emotional stakes you know we talked about this on Tenet as well um, but at any rate I thought that was a, a good place to end that do you guys have any uh, any thoughts on that not particularly I love not knowing what's going to happen and that's kind of and I felt that way in Suicide Squad too yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a good movie. Um, well, put, well put together. We movie. got a, a quick one here from Dave's Not Here. Uh asking, um, are horror movies the only place for daring artistic expression in film these days? He said he was tuning in for the Green Room episode and it occurred to him that uh, all the horror movies from the last decade from companies like A24, Neon, Spectre Vision, etc. have really been putting out stuff that uh, leans on the heady artsy side of things. Movies like Midsommar, Hereditary, The Lighthouse, The Witch, etc. This trend seems to be leaning more towards horror films being artistic. At one time, maybe dramas were the perfect outlet for artistic expression could it be that times have changed in a way that horror movies are more in the collective consciousness as an art form uh, because of contemporary emotions that need to be expressed i will uh, offer a quick thought on this before passing it off is that i just it's sad but there just aren't a lot of dramas and comedies getting made anymore because they don't play well overseas and they can't make a billion dollars horror movies still have a little bit better luck at the box office. It's a genre that's identifiable. And this isn't something that's new to contemporary horror. Um, uh, Wisecrack has actually uh, done some videos to this effect, uh, most recently one that I directed, um, that, uh, you know, horror has always been uh, an engine for, you know, uh, whether uh, issues, social issues, social commentary, um, taking on uh, bigger ideas wrapped in a genre casing, uh, that way they can kind of like get notions across to audiences without hitting them too over the head. What do you guys think? Are there any uh, any examples that come to mind for y'all? Well, yeah, and, and I would uh, really add onto that 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 they're cheap. That's the <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the, that's the golden reason why they're the low risk high know, reward. Yeah, exactly. They're the indie filmmaker's best friend genre. Um, but I, the the one that comes to mind right now, you know, from the last ten years is, is Get Out. Absolutely, where that was you know such a big awards movie, cheap. It, it launched uh, Jordan Peele, and then they kind of reinvigorated everyone else in the cast. It was, um, so yeah, there's something to that. Yeah, me too. And then I would talk about Cabin in the Woods as being a film that I think um, is so self-aware and meta in what it is that horror films do and what it is they speak about and um, what type of um, release or what type of enjoyment does the viewer get from watching these films. But I think it does so in a way that is also critical. It's kind of like, well, should we? There's this, there's, you know, the, the security guard in there at one point where, um, you know, the, the Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins are kind of like talking about like they're doing something and oh we got to see this and this is just the way it is to kind of pacify everyone and then the security guard kind of goes well should they like should we do this and I think that's something that's really interesting for us to consider is kind of like the um the ethical value of uh 
of, of the catharsis that comes from exploring the monstrosity within the human mind and things like that. And so I think there's actually, I think horror films have always been interesting. I think that maybe now there's just a little layer of respect that's getting added to them. And um, I don't know if it's because we can't do dramas and romance, but maybe it's because we've become a little bit cynical and jaded um, that, that, that maybe that's why horror we, is a perfect... We definitely can still do dramas and romance. Studios just don't care to, you know. <laughs> yeah. Just not, not as big of a return on those. Um, uh, I will just say to put a button on it, um, if you're more interested, if you're if you're really interested in the history of horror as like a signifier of the times, there's a wonderful book written by David J. Scowl that's just called The, the Monster Show, A Cultural History of Horror. I would highly recommend it. It's a great read. Um, uh, I, I was oh, also yeah. going to add that just like, I think there was kind of a backlash there to just grind them up, you know, uh, like, like Saw and, 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 and all sure. those kind of movies. Sure. Yeah, I think that that. But even those movies were were speaking to contemporary anxieties. You know, people forget that the the sort of torture porn and new French extremity uh, sort of came out of like post Iraq invasion and photos of Abu Ghraib and stuff like that. But I go, have a, go I on have on. a hot take. I think all film, in one sense, could be viewed as horror because if we view film. If we view art as being like commentary on like the human expression, it's all idealized versions of ourselves that we want to project about ourselves, whether it's like the best part, like, ooh, we're these romantic heroes and we're smooth talking or ooh, we're sexy and beautiful or ooh, blah, blah. but all of that is kind of all some idealized fantasy that could be bullshit in some way. And that's kind of horrific when you think about it. So maybe there's like this weird psychoanalytic perversion that we could that we could kind of like say cuts through all artistic experience expression but an ending is only happy depending on where you place it <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, moving on, we got tons of feedback on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yeah. People really wanted to uh, talk about that a little bit that's more. That's a so fucking we'll horror movie, some of these. okay? That's a fucking That is movie. absolutely. That is an <laughs> existential nightmare. Um, firstly, I wanted to say thanks. This is from Will Craven, by the way. I wanted to say thanks for the great discussion on Eternal Sunshine. Uh, this was the first podcast I had tuned into ever. But I love cinema, and this is my favorite movie of all time. So I got extremely lucky with the timing. I found it interesting that y'all and a few of the listeners agreed that this movie seems to hold great significance amongst folks our age. Uh, I also watched this movie when I was a teenager. None of my friends seemed to have the same regard for it, but they all watched it later than I did. The message of my email is this. Uh, at one point, you discussed Kaufman's early drafts where Joel and Clem were bound to the cycle of repeating the procedure. You said it would make the movie much more tragic and negate the themes of hope, but this is exactly how I see it. In the last few seconds, the clip of them running on the beach is looped a few times. It leads me to believe that they do make the same mistakes and erase each other again and again and again, but are led back to each other by fate. I still find hope and inspiration in this, but I also choose to recognize the movie as a reminder of the significance of the past and understanding that our pain is what allows us to progress as humans. Uh, what do you guys think about that? I'm just going to say I, I, th I concur. I think it was well put. I think yeah, you covered I a lot of the bases. I, I love that. Okay, so uh, we'll move on. This one is a little bit more of a, a, a pointed philosophical question here. This is from uh, Matthew Rotert or Rotaire. Apologies if I uh, if I messed up your last name there, Matthew. Uh, on Eternal Sunshine. Hey, SMTM crew, I have a question about Eternal Sunshine. In The Life of Reason, George Santayana describes that when we overfixate on preserving memory, quote, all that happens is at once forgotten and a vain repetition of the past takes the place of plasticity and fertile readaptation, end quote. This repetition is similar to his pain far from constituting its own remedy tends only to, to its own continuance. Do you think that Joel and Clem's memories had become so intense and painful that they could only perpetuate that pain if they kept them, that they needed the distance and of their taped confessions to more optimistically and triumphantly for love remain plastic to new habits and suggestions, yet able to graft them on original instincts which they thus bring to fuller satisfaction, end quote. Is some pain so deep that we cannot incorporate it at all into a better us? A very profound yeah, question. Yeah, I've heard from it Matthew. said before um, in psychotherapy that uh, depression is when you can't let go of the past, anxiety pertains to the future, fear about the future. 
And um, I think that, I mean, whether or not that's overly generalized is, is up for discussion, but there's definitely something interesting in that. If you if you have experienced trauma, and I think that actually the definitions that we're starting to understand about what constitutes trauma are much broader than we typically did in the past. Before it was always like, you know, like murders or assault or something like that. But I think it's much more about even like childhood neglect. You know, if you start reading about attachment theory and things like that, you know, depending on what type of um, uh, what type of parental or attachment uh, figures you had in your life in kind of like the formative years, kind of shaping your emotional emotional growth, um, that really kind of can be viewed in, in, in terms of trauma and it can have lasting effects on us. The question is, is how do you become adjusted to those things by incorporating, by enfolding those things into a life that allows you to experience more uh, more expressions of secure attachment or secure groundedness as you move forward. And I don't think it's as simple as letting go of the past and just being open to the future. Or is it just simply like, you got to just embrace and affirm the past and be like, yes, that was me and I have no regrets. I don't think it's either of those things. I think this is really fucking difficult and this is the not easy answer because the not easy answer is a not easy solution and I think it takes years and years and years of growth and study and internal reflection and sometimes we need guidance which means you talk to therapists, you talk to friends, you have wise elders, uh, you look at the fucking wise people from the past, um, you are an artistic creator, you explore the world. I don't know what it is for everybody. I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all solution, but I think that's basically the answer. And when we do that, we try to navigate this sticky experimental path of becoming better adjusted to trauma and anxiety. But it, it does seem like it is part and parcel of the human experience. This is starting to sound like owls at dawn. What do you think, Ryan? <laughs> yeah, I think I said in the pod, you know, I'm a... Uh, a, it's better to have loved than to have loved, lost loved than to not loved at all. <laughs> yeah. Or whatever, you know? And but I think that Charlie Kaufman, I'm not sure that he is one of those people because I think that he would <laughs> uh, you know, th- there is something to be said for y- you as a human being are like, God, that sucks so bad. Mm-hmm. And even though it's a part of my life, and yeah, I probably shouldn't want to go back in time and change it, like like what if I did? I would how you know, there's always a part of you that's like, you know, if I have the option you know what maybe it's better and that's kind of a paradoxical situation obviously because you, you're not going to know if it's going to be better unless you do it but then once you do it you're not going to be able to go back so i just that's obviously uh uh, uh exactly the kind of situations charlie kaufman writes stories about so um but you're right austin i think that there's no no real- and charlie kaufman seems to be just like a very sort of neurotic um insular kind of um solipsistic Careful, person and i think that subscriber yeah he's he's very much in his head and um and I, I think that what that does is when you get so trapped sometimes um in your own head it becomes very difficult to get out and i think that he's aware of that though right and i think a lot of times he's he's exploring films that that or he's exploring ideas about trying to get out and make those connections but i think he finds it very difficult um and so, you know, it's kind of the whole, um, what is it, Sonder? You know, the idea of, like, being able to actually connect and experience with, you know, to, to understand other people's, the fact that they are these, like, world-creating, world-living creatures. I think that's a very difficult thing to deal with. And for some of us, it's easier. And for some of us, it's much more difficult. And his whole shtick is that it's very fucking difficult or impossible, you know? You can't you can't learn from something you don't remember. Mm-hmm. Um We've got a, uh, a question here from Luke Beebe uh, to put a, uh, a cap on the Eternal Sunshine discussion. Luke Beebe, I call him the Irishman because I heard he paints houses. He says, first off, I love the podcast. I was painting houses this summer and listened to about four <laughs> episodes of Show Me the Meaning a Day till Amazing. I got through about 90% of your back catalog. And uh, I'm going to assume about 100% brain damage after, uh, after that. <laughs> that was uh, from sniffing was pretty- the paint, though. So yeah, I, yeah, it was from. It I was, was from I was the, a carpenter for a long time, so you know, every once in a while I get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was pretty great getting paid to listen to you all chat about movies all day. Hey, glad we could help, man. Um, a few weeks ago, I watched Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and listened to your episode on the film. I loved it. And as someone who is not well versed in movies or plays, this was the first time I saw a relationship analyzed in reverse. With that concept in my 
head, I was listening to Austin's podcast, Shout Out Owls at Dawn, where there was a reference to a Kierkegaard quote, Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. It struck me that there are probably some important ideas there if multiple thinkers and artists are exploring the concept. was hoping to get your takes on the quote, which I don't fully understand. <laughs> okay, thanks for your candor, Luke, and uh, how it might relate to the film. Thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. And Luke, you keep up the great work. And uh, be careful yeah. up on that ladder, man. Please, Luke. Hell yeah. Uh, what do you think there, Austin? You remember that discussion to which he's referring? Yeah, it was based... It was from the... Um from the uh, fucking Mads Mikkelsen film Another Round um, where uh, where the Kierkegaard it factors uh, quite heavily um, uh, so for the existentialists they viewed the sort of like uh, thrownness of human existence which is that you're thrown into a condition that is not of your own choosing right you don't choose where you're born you don't choose the family you're born into a lot of things that you don't have control over but at the same time you do have some sort of capacity for agency, right? And so that the real responsibility that's laid at your feet is to, one, be aware of the past that has formed who we are, but to then, therefore, have, like, this bold, um, active, forward-looking um, outlook on how it is that we're then going to create out of those conditions. So we can think of it like an artist. An artist doesn't create out of nothing, right? There's no creation ex nihilo. You already have colors and color palettes in the history of artistic creation and uh, you have a canvas that has you know parameters within which you must work and of course artists are always trying to break those parameters and work outside of those things but nevertheless even when you do that you're already carrying the parameters with you in your overcoming of them right and I think that's the idea is that past present and future all converge at the same moment and we can only create forward by having some sort of attunement respect and affirmation of the conditions or or the past that have formed us. And I think that's kind of the idea. Ryan, any thoughts to add? Uh, just uh, anything at all before we move on from Eternal Sunshine? No, that was a very succinct, Austin. Um, I love that movie. Fucking great one. <laughs> um, we've got a, a quick hit here. Another one from Matthew Rodert. He's got two on the board. Um, Apocalypse Now and Alien he's talking about here. He said, leaping off... Uh, leaping off Raymond's comment about Alien also debuting in 1979, do you think there is a worthwhile comparison between Kurtz and the Xenomorph? In his I've Seen Horrors monologue, <laughs> Kurtz ends on the need for using, quote, primordial instincts to kill without feeling passion or judgment, because it's judgment that defeats us. This notion echoes Ash's admiration of the alien as a survivor, unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. Uh, further, the thing Kurtz has become shifts constantly between lucid moral philosophy and brutal psychopathy. Beyond referencing the xenomorph's shifting form, Ash might describe this oscillation with, quote, its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. So what do you guys think? Anything that, uh, that binds these two movies other than uh, their, their release dates? How close are they released? I don't know the actual dates. They were the same year. I mean, it like I would say they're both quite obviously in the shadow of the Vietnam War apocalypse now. That's what Explicitly I was so alien. Alien has those touches of like anti-establishment like sentiment. Yeah. You know, you find out I can't remember if it's in the first movie or the second one that you find out like it's very anti-corporatist. You find out that Wayland Yutani is, you know, sort of feeding uh, these people to the aliens as part of like research and development and trying to get them back for uh, you know for, for exploitation in the military and things like that but I, well I don't in the know, first Ryan, film opens they're like a freighter for what is it whatever the fucking material is but it's like you know billions of billions of pounds or tons or whatever the fuck it is of whatever the resource is so there's an economic and kind of like political theme that's that's clearly there at the outset you know I mean it's interesting uh, uh, just the subgenre of of men on a mission through you know <laughs> I guess the jungle or space. What was that one that that, that 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 came out recently with Brad Pitt going out to the middle of nowhere? Ad Astra in space. It's basically Ad Astra now in space. Yeah, really which is basically and, and and Apocalypse Now is basically like Where the Wrath of God, the the uh, Werner Herzog. Just uh, I don't know. I think that humans 
Yeah, humans have always tried to kind of, especially like the modern or post-modern human has really been fascinated with the kind of binary between nature and culture, right? Like the wild and the tamed or the civilized and the uncivilized or, you know, some of these some of these binaries. And so I think that that's always going to be explored because that which is completely beyond us, that which is completely quote unquote wild is terrifying. So that's where the horror I think comes from. And so the question is, is, is that horror somewhere out there? there? Is it an alien? Is it a monster? Is it space? Is it trees? Is it the dark? Or is it something that can be inside? Is it, you know, the heart of man, the heart of darkness, you know, those kinds of things. So I think that's really what binds these films. And it's something that's just like a really common theme to explore kind of in the history of the West, especially post-World War II, right? Where you have supposedly technology was was supposed to come and save us and usher us into like you know 16 hour work weeks is what Keynes thought and uh you know there'd be abundant resources for everybody we and all, all these we things were, we and were then we're we'll, counting on Festus to bail us out after uh Yeah what the fuck man but that's not what happened we fucking annihilated people with uh bombs and uh, all kinds of different military technological advancements so it's it's something that like famously you know a lot of philosophers uh kind of have focused on this quote it's like can you do poetry after Auschwitz, you know, like, like, can you, can you do art? Can you, um, like, what, what does it mean to be human and to explore ethics in the world and beauty and things like that in the face of the horrors of what the human can do? So these are all themes that I think we're kind of like seeing get wrestled with in all of these films. And, and while, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, like, the thing, yeah. John Carpenter's The Thing is a good, good example of that, of like, oh, you know, uh, yeah. you're thrust in this situation, but it's about darkness of man but i i will say i get a little tired of that uh uh theme too like quiet place part two kind of did that where it's like oh it's not the the big monsters you, should, you need to worry about it's the people's reaction to it and um and kind of like like a million seasons of the walk <laughs> I, I think that was literally their tagline was like avoid the dead but fear the living or something like that that kind of yeah. thing yeah you know like uh i think that that trope can kind of get overdone but that's just my opinion well um Speaking about uh, uh, movies that share certain through lines, we got a few questions about environmental themes in different movies, um, many of which were uh, about the Green Knight specifically. So I chose one from Danny Blue. That was a um, a very thoughtful uh, message here. Uh, he says, uh, I saw the Green Knight as heavily commenting on our relationship with the environment. Maybe not the original material, but certainly the imagery through the translation to film. The Green Knight is born from a plant. He comes to them on a winter holiday when all the trees have been cut down to supply heat to the court. He offers a deal. The excess of damage you inflict on me will be dealt back in the future. It's obvious he should just give him a kick or a scratch, but he uses a tool, not a weapon, to cut off his head, and seemingly no one is worried about the problems this will lead to in the future. Through the two short year he is worried about his retribution. I felt it was a, a similar gut feeling of dread to that of ours today worrying about climate change. There's even the denial talk, some trying to force their thinking to be more of a joke or a game that they will never have to think about again. He's constantly thinking ahead now, referring to Gawain. When he is near death, tied up in the forest, the camera spins in a clockwise or forward in time direction to show where he fears he will be in the future, then spins back counterclockwise to show present day again. I think his mother orchestrated the whole thing as a test and to teach him the five chivalrous traits a knight should have. Once he fails them all on his journey, he flinches. But after thinking of his legacy, he passes the test and now has a story to tell and is a man of honor. Um, I know we touched on... Uh questions of uh, the environment in that film and, and uh, David Lowry has even stated pretty explicitly in several interviews that uh, he sees uh, aspects of it as a, an environmental metaphor but I, I thought um, uh, Danny Blue here had a, a few good points that we didn't necessarily touch on what do you guys think I mean I thought it was a uh... he covered all the bases himself <laughs> yeah. yeah okay well to, uh, to wrap up uh, that email, he says, cheers from a lockdown Melbourne. So, uh, Austin, maybe <laughs> when you guys uh, get out of lockdown, you can meet for a drink and talk it over. We're out now. Oh, yeah? We're out now. Well, mostly. Mostly out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he also recommends Under the Silver Lake if we ever have... Uh, an, uh, an open slot to fill movie wise um okay uh more environmental discussion we have a uh, an email here from dylan williams about snowpiercer um uh this was 
a very, very long email, so I just kind of have the beginning of it to give us the gist before passing it off to you guys. He says, sorry I'm a little late on this one, but I just listened to the episode on Snowpiercer, and I wanted to talk a little bit about everyone's favorite topic, capitalism. Specifically, I wanted to talk about the conversation that you guys had at the end of the episode about whether or not having the polar bear was a cop-out to make the movie Hollywood friendly. <laughs> I think that the ending with the polar bear is somewhat transgressive, even within the anti-capitalist framework. A recent book that's been getting a lot of play in philosophy circles is Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism. If you're unfamiliar, the central conceit of the book is that, quote, it is easier to imagine an end to the world than an end to capitalism. According to Fisher, capitalist realism has so captured public thought that the idea of anti-capitalism no longer acts as the antithesis to capitalism. Instead, it is deployed as a means for reinforcing capitalism. This is done through media, which aims to provide a safe means of consuming anti-capitalist ideas without actually challenging the system. This is uh, something we've kind of nibbled around on several conversations. Uh, one that comes to mind is like Judas and the Black Messiah, where it's like, yeah, you know, it's it, it's obviously uh, it, it sort of woven through with anti-capitalist sentiment, but it's still being made by fucking Warner Brothers. <laughs> you know, it's 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 sometimes difficult to uh, to um, sort of split those hairs a little bit. But what uh, what do you guys think, Austin? Have you read that book? Yeah. Um... Yeah, uh, you know, I did graduate research and, and PhD research in the UK um, when Mark Fisher was around, and he was a part of uh, the cybernetics research crew out of Warwick, and, and my external PhD examiner was also a part of that crew and was really good friends with Mark, so um, uh, very familiar with the book and, and Mark's research. Uh, he also used to be a prolific blogger back in the day when I was first starting my master's degree, and he has a great, great online resource, so if people are interested, check out his stuff. Um, I also that quote is really a Frederick Jameson quote. Um, that Zizek is used, Fisher is used as well. So if people are interested, Frederick Jameson is somebody that we've talked a lot about on on the Wisecrack channel as well. I mean, the basic idea is this: is like, can you break out of a sort of hegemonic idea, an idea that has its tendrils in in everything? And and I think that's a really difficult theoretical question. You know, for some people, there's something called accelerationism, um, and people within Mark Fisher's immediate sphere, particularly people I've worked with, Nick Cernick and Alex Williams, they wrote a book called Inventing the Future post-capitalism in a world without work, which I produced the documentary, kind of experimental avant-garde adaptation of, um, kind of played with this idea of, of acceleration, which the way out is through, right? Um, a sort of like retooling of the tools of uh, a, an exploitative capitalist system, but in a way that would be much more inclusive, much less exploitative. Um, so that's kind of one way forward. I, I guess whipping this around then and talking about Snowpiercer, what do we think about the end of Snowpiercer? I think that what you get at the end of Snowpiercer is really this, uh, it's kind of like you get these two two worlds. One is blow everything up, derail the train, and then you have a possibility for transformation. Or it's could not Chris Evans' character, can't remember his name at the moment, could he not take over the engine room and somehow reform the system from within, right? Um, that was like the big debate that a lot of people even wrote us in and asked us questions on. I think that the, the approach that the film takes is that you blow the fucking thing up, and you know what? Maybe there's a chance for survival, but then the joke is this. Like, you get out, and there's a fucking polar bear that's gonna <laughs> eat you, right? So like yeah you get out and it's so I don't think that it's actually some sort of like positive like yeah we're gonna derail the train and survive in the middle of fucking Siberia or wherever they are they're gonna starve to death they're gonna freeze to death and then they're gonna body's gonna get eaten by a polar bear and then maybe maybe that's better maybe fucking destroy humanity is what the film is actually saying I don't know I'm not saying that that's that's a good uh, solution but uh, fuck that's at least one of the things that the film's Definitely kind of putting out, out there out of the frying <laughs> pan and into the tundra Ryan what do you got the, really is the movie is trying to say like you know life found a way and uh that they're gonna end up ultimately making it and, and that it's a happy ending could be there's i mean it could be suggesting that life can be sustained outside the walls of snow piercer but for what species and for how long and are these people who have only yeah. known the walls of Snowpiercer <laughs> their entire lives prepared to live it? I mean, it's it's an ambiguous ending, you know? Some You could read hope, you could read uh, tragedy. Yeah, I go tragedy. That's a horror um, film. So it's a horror speaking, film. They're all, they're yeah. all horror films. Um, speaking of, uh, this is our last uh, subject here. This is sort of glancingly about the environment, but I'm going to make it about the environment because I missed my first chance to do this months ago. We have a voicemail from yeah. Logan about uh, Pacific Rim. Uh, so can we roll that voicemail, Matt? Hey, Wisecrack, it's Logan here, calling after listening to your Pan's Labyrinth podcast. 
I wanted to talk a little bit about Guillermo del Toro and his themes regarding monsters. Now, I've always associated del Toro with monsters, but I've never really realized how much he empathizes with them until rewatching a bunch of his films back-to-back. With that in mind, would you guys say that Pacific Rim goes against his usual themes regarding monsters? I enjoy that movie a lot, but I never feel empathetic with the monsters. Even with the neural link thing with the monsters that happens, I feel as if they aren't really sympathetic characters. Um, feel free to tell me why I'm wrong or what I'm missing. Um, also, I'd love if you could cover more Bong Joon home films. I feel as if he's one of the greatest living filmmakers, and I would love to hear you guys covering more of his work. Appreciate the podcast. Peace. Thank you for calling in, Logan, and I will take an opportunity just to speak to it. The basic gist of the podcast is he was asking about how throughout Del Toro's career, he really empathizes with monsters, basically until Pacific Rim when they're kind of exclusively painted as the bad guy. The reason that I said (laughs) I whiffed on this one was that, Austin, when you and I did our our two-man Enter the Drift uh, conversation about Pacific Rim. It, it was pretty early in in my tenure on the show, and uh, it, folks, a little peek behind the curtain. I was. It, it wasn't necessarily that I was gun shy. Are you gun shy? A little peek behind the curtain. In addition to this conversation, as you all know, we try to keep an eye on the chat. There were only two of us on that one, so it was like I had Austin in one ear, and then uh, you know the chat in one eye, and I was just my my focus was split. He asked me an absolute layup question at the end, perfectly setting me up to talk about climate change, and I completely whiffed because I barely heard what he was asking. But you you basically asked the same question that what what do you think it means that these mm. these uh, monsters are treated as monsters and they're not humanized within the context of the film and i was so beaten up I was killing myself over uh, fucking whiffing on this one Mm. that I actually went to YouTube and posted a comment underneath the video as like a mea culpa because (laughs) we didn't address climate change at all in in the Pacific Rim episode. Um, But I want to take an opportunity to do that now. So I am reading a prepared statement from the YouTube comment section of our our, uh, SMTM episode about Pacific Rim. I wanted to acknowledge the the kaiju as climate change angle, which is a major theme we somehow overlooked during our discussion. The movie makes a huge point of that with a Kaiju's hurricane-like category system, explicit mentions of Earth's carbon concentration already making the planet more hospitable for the precursors, the ghoulish government bureaucrats planning to build a coastal wall and retreat inland, the framing of the situation as a global problem that requires global solutions, and most vitally, the presentation of the Kaiju as something more akin to forces of nature than movie villains who are driven by any conscious objective. Austin brought up that last aspect near the end of the pod, and I've been kicking myself all day for how poorly I articulated my response to his prompt. (laughs) Additionally, this movie is paying homage uh, or paying homage to a long history of kaiju films many of which are explicitly about humankind's constant antagonizing of nature and hubristic desire to play god most popularly with the anti-nuclear messaging in the original godzilla which is one of my all-time favorites all that to say there were tons of opportunities to acknowledge climate change on this podcast and i completely struck out the reason that i wanted to bring that up is that people did call me out in the chat and in the comments of the youtube section for (laughs) not talking about that and i will say in addition to all the preamble that there are some movies like Green Knight or Titan or um, uh, the the one we were just discussing two seconds ago, uh, Snowpiercer, that are clearly like dealing with some environmental subtext, but may not come out and explicitly say it. Pacific Rim come out comes out and explicitly says it. And sometimes <laughs> I, I can only speak for myself, but sometimes when we're on the show discussing movies, when stuff is so much on the surface, we can kind of miss the forest for the trees because, you know, we assume everyone mm. has caught on to that thing. And it just, you know, we only have an hour to do this and we're doing it live. And uh, I'm sorry, folks. I, I missed out there. And uh, in closing here, I said, um, I mentioned on the pod that Del Toro's aesthetic fascinations can sometimes lead him to miss the forest for the trees. Then I did that very same thing during this discussion by zeroing in on all the cool little aspects of this movie, its universe, and the ideas that it personally inspired in me, rather than centering the discussion on what the filmmaker gave to all of us, which is what this podcast is really all about. So consider this my mea culpa. It is the last apology any of you fans will ever get. All right, Austin. We forgive you, Raymond. You're forgiven. You, <laughs> You're forgiven. <laughs> I was You're forgiven, Raymond. I, I consider you myself this podcast climate envoy. And uh, boy, oh boy, did I, <laughs> I let everybody down. So moving on from that one. So, I'm excited for Don't Look Up, the, the climate uh, yeah. Adam McKay movie. Very excited to see that. 
um, he's been talking that one up for a while. Um, but uh, let's uh, let's pivot to um, we have here a uh, a question about Dune from Isaac Viafana. Uh, ap- apologies, apologies, Isaac, if I messed up your last name there. Uh, the <laughs> He says uh, he starts off pretty hot. It's going to be a no for me on Dune. He says, yes, it is visually and aesthetically pleasing as a whole, but uh, it's succeeding in creating the proper tone surrounding the themes and ideas echoed in the book. But while the cinematography and score were well executed, I didn't find it successful as a whole because it missed the mark in other departments, specifically in its adaptation of the story. Whether or not you've read the book, a writer should be able to tell a story well enough to get investment from the audience. This has become a big pet peeve of mine he says, making three-hour-long films and sacrificing story. If the three-hour runtime is important and necessary, then use every minute of those three hours to make up for any of the film's shortcomings. Maybe Dune would have been a more uh, more interesting as a visual film with experimental elements like Tree of Life, but what do you guys think? Uh, what makes a good adaptation? I feel like we've kind of touched on this before, but uh, specifically in the context of Dune, what do you all think? I, I think that uh, in the context of Dune, and I mean, I feel bad hammering on this, but uh, uh, but the <laughs> the splitting up is was a bad way to do it, if if I would do say so myself. I think it should have either been a mini series, or they should have ended it in a different way, or or truncated it. Um, but those are my thoughts on on how they adapted Dune. Yeah, I think we're. This this is one of those yeah. questions I think we kind of already covered previously in a way. I, I will say this though, I actually have kind of a maybe a fringe take. I don't give a shit about like fidelity to the original source. I actually don't care. Like like I don't when when people are like oh it's not true to the I don't give a shit. Like that's not the job of the filmmaker to somehow like bow down to the author before them. Like I kind of don't really care. I think that film is its own language. It's its own expression. It's doing its own thing. And I love the idea that someone can be like, "Hey, this is inspired by this thing, but I'm going to do what I want." That's not why I don't like Dune. Like yeah, there are things that I feel like the book handles differently that is interesting to talk about as a comparison but it doesn't like make one better than the other because one is the themes are more fleshed out or this story kind of goes in this direction i really don't give a shit um for me the film just wasn't something that i thought ultimately worked because i thought it was a bit slow um i thought kind of the acting was a bit uh wooden um i I thought that um they over i mean the trailer oversold zendaya's role which i thought was kind of weird i i I feel a little bit like it was manipulative to try to get people and that kind of always pisses me off when they do that i mean there were a bunch of things that i just didn't love about the film as itself i don't think it stands or falls because of its fidelity to the original i I think we talked about this weirdly enough on the street fighter episode um, a, a fucking decade ago, <laughs> whatever it was, that Classic. to me, what makes a good adaptation is is when you can sort of isolate the spirit of the source material. Um, you know, your mileage may vary. I, I think uh, we were talking about Charlie Kaufman earlier. His his uh, last film was a not at all faithful adaptation of a very good book, uh, and I enjoyed the book and the movie both immensely because I think he he finds sort of the beating heart of it and sort of takes it in a Charlie Kaufman direction. Um, but uh, another great study in contrasts, if you're interested in like the art of adaptation, is from the year 2007. I would uh, highly recommend reading both No Country for Old Men and uh, Oil by Upton Sinclair because two of the best movies from 2007 were both adaptations. No Country for Old Men is almost like a a word-for-word lift from Cormac McCarthy's book, whereas Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, it it barely has anything to do with Upton uh, Sinclair's book. Uh, He he kind of like takes the character names and like the first third of the book, and then he creates a new second third act um, and creates entirely new character dynamics around it, but it's, um, it's still a phenomenal adaptation and I think two of the best movies, uh, probably the two best movies from that year. That's a good point in terms of how different they are from the source material. I, I, I think a good, the best and most obvious contrast for Dune is freaking Lord of the Rings because, I mean, as someone who didn't read those either, like I can, you know, to me, Lord of the Rings, I can watch it as a non-Lord of the Rings reader and still be like, wow, all right, sure. I, I'm following what's going on. A very a very different type of movie, even though they're both obviously fantasy and yeah. yeah. 
but no, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. What I'm saying is like the energy of Lord of the Rings is a lot different than the energy of a Denis Villeneuve film. And I think that also may, may keep a three hour movie at arm's length when it's paced like a Denis Villeneuve film. All that is well and good when it's, you know, 90 minutes, but so, uh, we're going to wrap things up, but we got one more question from, uh, the Eternal himself, Matthew Rodert, uh, going for the hat trick today. Uh, and he has a, a question about Eternals, the multiverse, and postmodernism. Uh, hey, boys, uh, even though not narratively tied to the multiverse, isn't Eternals thematically linked? Both seem to express an incredulity towards meta narratives, a la Jean Francois Lyotard's definition of postmodernism. The Eternals all eventually reject their purpose in fulfilling Arisham's grand design. Most outright rebel. Icarus even immolates himself to avoid the choice. Does it seem fitting that the MCU should explore the death of God, the author, and meaning after the passing of Stan Lee, of all things? So, uh,. What do you guys think? There's some uh, something to nibble on there philosophically and uh, also some good popcorn discussion there. Popcorn first. <laughs> popcorn first? Well, what, what, how do you think uh, Stan Lee's passing has shaped the Marvel Universe? Do you think it has done uh, really... I, I would argue that uh, Stan Lee was not really the the creative force behind the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Obviously, his his characters are being interpreted for that. Um, well, I mean, it's Kevin Feige, I would say. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I I don't know how much it, it it is. Kind of a neat coincidence that he touches on there that you know a movie that is so concerned with. Uh, with sort of spectral planes or, or uh, however you want to define it would would come after the death of the grand author within the the Marvel canon but i mean Stan Lee was like in his 80s he, you know he's getting on there in age like i'm i'm pretty sure you may be able to project that onto whatever marvel movies <laughs> came after he eventually passed away um, because I assure you, they will continue making Marvel movies long after all of us have passed away. That is the truth. But, um, yeah, I mean, going to the what whole... What do you think uh, about some of those philosophical precepts, Austin? Yeah, I, so what Leotard's really getting at in the postmodern condition is he's getting at there's a sort of like um, a lack of belief, a lack of trust in the what are called self-legitimizing meta-narratives. And Leotard's in a, in a big debate with uh, like Jürgen Habermas and, and some others um, of that time period. And the idea is, is like, how does one legitimize legitimize authority you know so like the monarch uh, uh, under the divine right of kings was like god is legitimizing the authority the nation state is basically like what it's a constitutional or some sort of like the people give it legitimacy and so the question is is like once you start to kind of even question the source of legitimacy for a power you then start to find yourself in very um, shaky ground because the foundation is not as solid as you thought it may have been. So if this film, and obviously Wisecrack, I think we did a great video on this, if this film is really about the sort of death of God, what you're ultimately doing in a very Nietzschean sense is you're attaching, I'm sorry, you're detaching yourself from any sort of foundation, or as Nietzsche talks about, detaching the moorings. So you're basically like a ship floating out in the middle of the sea without a map, without a compass. You're not attached to anything. You don't have land in front of you. You're kind of trying to figure things out by what? Reading the stars or following the wind or something like that? And what that does is that creates a very sort of precarious human condition. And so I think that absolutely these films are doing that. But again, this is the zeitgeist of the time. We are looking at the authority figures around us and we are either politically apathetic or skeptical or cynical because we've been jaded we've been fooled so many times right it's the famous george bush fool me once shame on shame you, you fool me you can't get fooled again you know <laughs> but um verbatim yeah 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 but fool me once shame on me fool me twice shame on you you know the sort of thing where it's like um uh i'm sorry other way around um uh but 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 the idea is again is like we have been jaded and and we have maybe kind of learned a bit um, about like how to kind of figure things out and it is very Nietzschean and Leotar himself is very influenced as are all the French kind of post structuralist post phenomenologists very influenced by Nietzsche's sort of uh, uh, attacks on the authority figures on the self legitimizing authority figures of of God state etc etc and so I think you're going to continue to see this in the Marvel films because there is a sort of cultural zeitgeist where we are skeptical of the state and we are skeptical of um, uh, military and we are skeptical of 
the power figures that pat themselves on the back and they say, we are here and we have authority and we're doing good, right? Which again, look at Suicide Squad. You have the Patriot, right? Who then ends up being a kind of like, right? So again, it's like, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and how do they get their authority and what does that mean for us? I think we're going to see this explored a lot with all of um, the films moving forward, whether or not they're kind of like intentionally trying to do so or not. I just think it's kind of in our social unconscious, so to speak. It's in, it's in the zeitgeist at yeah. this point. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I, I mean, we're, we're running a little bit over, but uh, I think that's it. I'd say uh, we should go to the mailbag real quick, but I don't think we have time. <laughs> Um, so, uh, what, what do you think, guys? Uh, should we uh, should we wrap it up? Ryan, final thoughts? Throw yeah. a movie or two that we've uh, liked that from this year so far. I'm, I'm that we sure. did on the podcast or just in general? Or just in general. I'm not sure if I brought this one up again or, or yet, but No Sudden Move, the Soderbergh movie, I loved. Um, did you like it, Raymond? Did you I, like it? I haven't watched it yet, but I love Soderbergh. I'm excited to watch it. It was great. Card Counter was great. Paul Schrader's Paul, uh, Card Counter. Love um, those are two that I uh, I really dug. I like Barb and Star. Go to Vista Del Mar. It's not for, e- not, not for everybody, true. but I liked it. I'm bummed I wasn't on the episode where we talked about Titan. I went and saw Titan at the Sydney Film Fest, and I thought it was fucking fantastic. It like got my creative juices flowing again. I also saw the new Jane Campion film, The Power of the Dog. While I didn't love, I didn't love certain aspects of it, which I don't want to kind of spoil here because I don't want to sour anybody's experience of it i thought it was really interesting and it definitely stirred up a lot of controversy not controversy discussion let's say um so uh that's something to that's something um, to look I think forward to most of my favorite yeah. movies from this year we've actually covered on the pod green knight judas and the black messiah uh we we did we've been doing talking Titan for like 30 weeks now i'm still going strong on that one uh, but i will throw <laughs> out one that we haven't discussed on the podcast uh starring nicholas cage pig folks if you haven't seen pig highly recommend it pig. it's a, a, a Lovely performance from uh, from Nicolas Cage. A really uh, a really beautiful story that, um, without ever and without giving away any spoilers, it it's constantly zigging when you expect it to zag. It knows exactly what you think it's going mm. to be, and it's not that it's trying to subvert your expectations, but it's just trying to do its own thing and tell a really really simple and lovely story. I highly recommend it. I appreciated Pig. Did not love Pig. That's my two cents. <laughs> Um, and, and I feel like there was one. Oh, I, I, uh, uh, I follow up. I did not love French Dispatch, dude. Oh. I really enjoyed French Dispatch. I, I don't know oh. that it would be uh, one of my favorites of uh, uh, of Wes Anderson's, but I, I I liked it quite a bit. But I also maybe this is the Dune thing. I knew what I was getting into. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Well, uh, we, uh, I'm trying to think. Anything coming up? Licorice Pizza, I'm excited to see. Nightmare Alley, speaking of Del Toro. Ghosts, um, and ghosts of Prisoners of the Ghostland, I still need to see that. The Nick Cage, Sheehan Soto yeah, movie. There's a lot of stuff that's going to be coming out still uh, in the last couple months of the year, but we will not be discussing any of it because we are too fucking busy talking about Adam McKay's stepbrothers next week on the podcast. <laughs> One of Fuck my you. favorite movies. Very, very <laughs> excited to talk about stepbrothers with y'all. Um, so, uh, yeah, a little something to look forward to as we, uh, we go into the holiday season. But um, for now, what do you think? Should we sign off? Send us out of here, Ryan. Ryan, where can they find you? <laughs> Oh yeah, I forgot about all that shit. <laughs> this felt like this felt this like a this like felt like Patreon. a bonus episode. Yeah, so I was like, like let's go. Let me a Ryan Shorts on Ooh. YouTube and Twitter and Instagram and stuff like that. Ryan's Game Show. Yes, Raymond. And speaking of the Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/wisecrack. Um, and you can find me. Find me on Twitter, <laughs> Austin underscore Hayden. Uh, Insta, AOS underscore H-A-Y, Apparently, I'm, I swear I'm never hosting again. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. Uh, Ryan, for the second time today, send us home, brother. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. This has been Show Be the Mailbag.